you find yourself in a season of waiting? What do you do when you are seeking an answer from God and you don't feel like you're hearing back from Him? What do you do when God calls you to do something, like you get this little spiritual whisper or hint or nudge in your heart or in your mind that God might be asking you to do something and you're not certain of it <laughs> or it doesn't seem to make sense? How do you respond? What do we do while we're waiting? You know, I think back to a time early on in our church, the year's 2020, and it's April, and there's this little, you know, global pandemic that just started. And things shut down. We were one of the first churches to shut down in the valley. Part of it was trying to be wise. Part of it, honestly, just transparently here is to be practical because we knew the schools were going to shut down any moment, and so we preemptively shut down. So that way we weren't just at the rim, uh, whim of that. And so we didn't want them to call us on a Saturday night and say everything's shut down. So we went ahead and we shut things down. But being a brand new church, we didn't know what God was going to do next. We didn't own any facilities. We didn't own any places um, where we could gather. And so uh, we wanted to be safe. We wanted to be smart. And we wanted to reach people. Well, I got this nudge from God that really at our church's core is that we want to be for the community that we believe God is for you, which means we are for you, and together we can be for the community. And we got this nudge that really we needed to double down on our generosity, that in a community that's facing a future that's unknown, that we want to lead the way in generosity and, and serving and meeting practical needs here. Well, I had gotten connected with a ministry called RIP Medical Debt, and what they did was they would pay off medical debt for those families who are in financial crisis. And so normally those who have hospital bills uh, that people cannot financially um, pay, what happens is those bills get sold to creditors for a hundred, uh, really a penny to the dollar, so one to a hundred ratio. And then those creditors hound people and just get what they can out of them. Well, this company buys that same debt for that same ratio of 100 to 1, and then turns around and forgives this debt. And I thought about it, and we talked about it, and we prayed about it with our leadership team. We were like, man, this is a great picture of the gospel. That in a, a medical global crisis, we had the opportunity to pay off the medical debt for someone, and they would receive a letter in the mail, not saying here is the bill that's due, but a debt that's been paid. And so we, we researched, we found out from this company, and we said, okay, how many families meet this criteria here in our neighborhood? And, it, and between this zip code and the one just north of us, so the 85050 and the 85331 zip code, there were 700 families that accrued about $1.3 million in de medical debt. Now, that 100 to 1 ratio meant that it was about $13,000 that was needed to pay off this medical debt. And so we were praying about it as a leadership team, we were thinking through it and felt this nudge, and, and we felt like God was calling us to pay this off for people. And what's crazy was at that time, that represented over 50% of what was coming in on a monthly basis for us. So the pandemic hit. We have no place to meet. We have no place to gather. And God's leading us to pay off from half of what came in that month. And so we're like, okay, God, this seems kind of crazy, but um, let's, let's go for it. And so we called up a team and said, okay, hey, we'll take it. And they're like, what do you mean take it? I said, we'll take all of it, and we're going to pay off um, this medical debt. And so we were able to do so. Uh, at the same time, I was on the outside, we're like, we're going to be bold. God's going to move. And on the inside, I was like, ah, 
ah, <laughs> what are we doing? Why did I, what did I just sign up for, right? Um, and, um, you know, you reach that point and it's almost like this, oh, crap moment and probably shouldn't say crap from stage. But anyway, that's just how I was feeling, right? And so I, I was like, oh, man, what did we do? And so we agreed to this on a Tuesday night and we took this step and, and what was crazy was that next morning, it was Wednesday morning, 8 o'clock, the first email I opened was from Converge, that's our tribe, that's our network of churches, about 1,300 churches around the country, and we got a letter, email from them saying, hey, in light of this pandemic, we know brand new church plants are going to be hurting and struggling, and so that's why we're writing this letter to inform you that you have qualified for a $10,000 grant that's going to be coming your way. <laughs> How wild is that? That like we, we took this step and God basically replaced it within 12 hours. And I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and then I started to question, God, why didn't you give that before, you know? I would be okay with that. That would be way less scary. But then I think, too, that's also the point. You know, because then we gave from a place of faith. And then we got to see God be faithful, right? In a time of need, we got to show up. And then God got to show off. And... And we've seen this time and time again in that. And so what I want to talk to you about today is that tension of what do we do when God prompts us or we're seeking an answer to prayer and we find ourselves waiting or we find ourselves nudged to go in a direction and we're not quite sure if this makes sense. See, last week we jumped into the life of Elisha, the most prolific, least talked about prophet in the Old Testament. He's the most prolific because other than somebody named Jesus, he performed more recorded miracles in the Bible than anybody else. But he's the least talked about because when you think about the Old Testament, you tend to think of characters like Abraham, Noah, David, Moses, Elijah. You got confused with that all the time. No, no, it's Elisha. Oh, you're talking about my boss before. And so Elisha did all these miracles, but yet we shared last week that he really came from simple beginnings. That he was out as a farmer working the field. That he was smelling oxen duty and seeing oxen booty. And it was in the middle of the day and he was there that God met him where he was and called him and led him where to go. And we saw through the faithfulness that Elisha had positioned himself to be ready to answer his calling. And that when he made that change, when he stepped out in faith and obedience... He ended up actually killing the cows and burning the plows because what he was saying collectively to his family, but then also to Elijah, who he started following, was that there is no plan B. And so while last week we talked about what does it mean to start from small beginnings, today we're going to talk about the value of small tasks. Small acts of obedience that lead to big eternal results. And sometimes it seems like it doesn't make sense. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. God's provision includes our preparation. God's provision includes our preparation. In other words, God invites us into the process. That a small task done in the name of Jesus can produce big eternal results. That if we are faithful in the small things, God will be faithful in those big things. So to pick up our story here, we're in 2 Kings chapter 3. 
There is, really to set it up, the kingdom is divided. There's Israel in the north. There is Judah in the south. It's called kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, because there's a bunch of them. Most of them turn to God. In this particular case, we have Jehoram, who was the son of Ahab. Ahab was the guy who challenged Elijah with Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And then in the southern kingdom, they have this guy, Jehoshaphat, who makes a lot of mistakes, but at least he's open to God and still seeks God and his counsel in some things. We're going to see that to come into play. And what happened was Ahab dies, Jehoram takes over, and the Moabites, uh, there's, uh, if you picture the nation here, you have Israel, then you have Judah, and you have Edom. You have the Dead Sea in the middle, and on the other side, you have the Moabites. Well, the Moabites owed Israel 100,000 lamb, and actually even more than that in wool, but they, they had an, a standing order and debt that was owed to Israel. But Ahab died, so the king of the Moabites said, well, my debt was to Ahab, not to you, so I'm not going to pay it. And so the king of Israel at the time said, wait a second, if my power is challenged, he could challenge all of us. And so he goes to the south, he goes to Judah and says, hey, Jehoshaphat, I know we don't like each other, but we need to combine for this because an enemy of my enemy is now then my friend. And so, so they said, let's combine and then let's walk through Edom. So let's get three of us together, go around the sea and challenge and take over the Moabites. So we strengthen our positions long term. And so they're going to go and they're going to challenge the Moabites and have this battle, this war, three on one. But there's a problem. Is that there's this problem here that they start to march for seven days and it's a drought. It's a desert. I feel like us Arizonians, and Phoenicians here understand this passage and can relate to this passage more than other people in the United States. But there is this drought. The ground is hard, and the people are thirsty, and the animals are dying. So it is not good. And so they feel stuck. And so here's where we pick up our story. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. It says, So the king of Israel went, to the, um, went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they made their circuitous march for seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. In other words, he's saying, we went to go challenge this king, and because we're thirsty and we're dying, this king can now take over all three of the, the countries, all three of this, these lands. And then verse 11, And Jehoshaphat, that's the king of Judah, said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here? Through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Hey, the guy that took over for Elijah, we know him. He might be able to help us out. Verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, and the word of the Lord is with him. See, there's a little bit of that belief, openness. I'm not saying he's great, he makes a lot of mistakes, but he's at least open to God. It says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, down to Elisha. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Oh man, he is a snarky little prophet, that Elisha. And I wonder where he got it from. Well, actually, he probably got it from Elijah. See, a couple chapters before in 1 Kings, when Elijah challenged uh, Jehoram's dad, Ahab, and he challenged the prophets of Baal, they threw down. And if you're not familiar with the story, they set up an altar for each 
um, God, for Baal and for God, and they said, okay, let's pray and see whose God will send down fire to start this altar. And so Elijah starts trash-talking these other prophets of Baal, and he's like, I'll even pour water on mine and make it so it's impossible apart from God to start this fire on this altar. And so they're crying out, the prophets of Baal are crying out, and nothing's happening. And so Elijah trash talks them, says, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom, right? Maybe he's next door, you know, and, try, and he starts trash talking. So he's a little snarky, and he's passed this along to Elisha. And I can appreciate the fact that there is a place for sarcasm in the Bible. But, um, and so he's trash talking, so he's challenged by three kings that a normal person being confronted by three kings would be very soft-spoken and step back. But he steps up and says, hey, you haven't followed God this whole time. Why don't you go back to Baal and ask him to help you? And so he steps up, and he's confident in who his God is, and he continues on. He says, but the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And then verse 14, Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. <laughs> have you ever helped out a friend of a friend? Like, you don't want to help someone out, but you like this person, and you're like, oh, okay, you're lucky you're friends with this person, because I would have nothing to do with you otherwise. He basically says that to the king of Israel. He's like, I don't like you, but this guy's at least open to God, and it's through the country of Judah that ultimately we're going to have the Savior from. So, so and because there's openness to God here, I will help you out this time. So he goes on, and he says there in verse 15, and we're going to switch translations briefly because I like the wording of one thing here. Uh, in the New King James Version here, in verse 15, it says, Now bring me a musician. Now, I love this verse, John, in the back, because we look for scripture, right? Like, you know how at the end of service we bring up music, and, it, and I get all inspirational and excited, right? Right there, boom, in scripture. Even Elisha brought up the musician for the end of service. So there we go. It's in scripture, and I feel really validated. Um, and so, so he said, bring me a musician. And so he brings the musician. The music starts playing here. He says, and the hand of the Lord came upon him. And Elisha said, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now pause. This makes no sense. <laughs> Think about it for a second. You are these powerful kings about to go to battle. You are in a drought. The ground is hard. Your people are weak. The sun is hot. And you are seeking water, praying for water, and the response is, grab a shovel. Hey, you know how you're exhausted, and you're hot, and you're in need, and you're about to die? Let's work a little more. Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. <laughs> this is crazy. You see, God's provision includes our preparation, and we're going to really dive into what this means in, in just a moment. But let's continue reading. Verse 17, For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water. So you're not even going to see the storm coming. So that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. He says, you're going to be saved. Then notice verse 18. He says, And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. 
Oh, by the way, he will also deliver you, deliver the Moabites into your hand. I will provide water and save you and your family. And that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's child's easy. Oh, by the way, you're also going to win the war. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> so these reluctant, broken kings follow through, tell their people, start digging up them holes, digging, digging up. If you've seen the movie Holes, you know, you, you know what song I'm talking about there. That was uh, Shia LaBeouf's really claim to fame before Transformers. But um, if you know that movie, it's great. If you don't know that movie, it's okay. You're not missing a whole lot. But um, so can you imagine being the king's servants and in his army, they said, hey, we summoned a prophet of the Lord. He is going to bring the water and he's going to save our people. And then he comes back and says, all right, I want you to spend all day digging a hole. Wait, what? I know you're about to die and it's hot and the ground is hard and we don't see any clouds around, but I want you to start digging a hole. doesn't make sense until it does so they dig the holes the next day they don't see the storms coming but this flash flood starts rolling through the valley and it fills the valley it fills the ditches with water and it does a couple things one it does bring sustenance to the people and to the animals and to the armies but the second thing it does actually is that it fills the ditches with water, it fills the valley with water, where the Moabites from a far distance, not seeing clouds, not seeing anything, based on the hard ground and the water and the sun and the mixture, it looks red. It almost looks like pools of blood from a distance. It's not, but it looks like that. And so they look at each other and be like, oh, the three kings have turned on each other. And they're fighting. We've already won. Let's go get our spoils of war and go take the camp and finish them off. And so they go and charge the camp. And then imagine the soldiers, they're just getting their water, having their breakfast, and they're all ready for battle. Like, okay, we're going to go out there. And then all of a sudden they look up and they just run into camp. They're like, wait, what? And the Moabites didn't think they were going to be ready. They thought they were going to basically an empty, diminished camp. But instead, they just ran into three kingdoms worth of armies and just got annihilated. And they win the war. So God not only provided the water, but then also provided the victory in war through this one miracle. And it's kind of crazy here. And so why would God do this? Why would God tell them to dig ditches before providing the water? Well, I think the reason he does that is because he invites us into the process. He challenges us to step out in faith and then comes through so that we can see that on the other side of obedience. Our job is obedience. God's job is outcome. And we see this. And we actually see this as a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Quick preview for next week. We're going to be taking a look at 2 Kings chapter 4 and a story about a widow who is in great need. And God provides that need, but then Elisha challenges her with the task of collecting jars and vases. And I won't talk too much about that right now, because we're going to talk about that next Sunday, I invite you back. But, but this widow who is about to die has to go and collect these jars, and then God provides. Well, the next chapter, in chapter 5, there's this guy named Naaman. 
Naaman is a commander of a Syrian army, a neighboring country, very wealthy, very successful. But he has leprosy. He has this skin disease that's going to take his life. And so because of his success, because of his wealth, because of his power, he thinks, well, I have all these things, so surely there must be a solution somewhere. And so he's searching for someone that can heal him. He goes to the neighboring country, Israel. He says, Does anybody, can anybody help me? I got power, I got money, I got strength, I can, whatever you need, I can provide it, I just need some help. And say, well, there's this guy, Elisha, who prays and stuff happens, so I would go see him. And so we don't have time to read through all the story, it's in, a, in 2 Kings chapter 5, but so then... Nahum shows up to Elisha's door with all his armies and horses and all this wealth and power, and he knocks. And Elisha, this is where the snarkiness of Elisha comes in. He doesn't even answer the door. It's like, Elisha, Elisha. I mean, he's got this entourage. Like, I mean, he is, he's something special, or at least he thinks. It's like, you don't answer me? Like, I can storm your house right now. You don't answer the door, and Elisha sends a servant. Say, hey, hey go, go, go get the door. And he opens the door, and name is like, you know, here's, I want this cured. The servant goes back, asks Elisha. Elisha tells the servant, goes back, and he says, hey, tell, Nahum, um, tell him to wash in the Jordan River seven times. She goes back and tells him, hey, wash in the Jordan River. The Jordan River... It's literally the dirtiest river of all the rivers in this area. I'm probably going to get an extra case of leprosy just by going in the water. That's the water I'm supposed to go in and I'm supposed to be cleansed? Why didn't I go and he starts listing rivers and lakes? I could have gone to this water, this water. He says, yep. And not only do you have to go one time, you have to go seven times. But desperate and in need, he decides to go down. And Naaman just goes in. And sure enough, on the seventh time out of the water... He's cleansed. This story runs repeatedly throughout Scripture. God makes a promise or a declaration, but then he asks somebody to take a small step of faith in the process. He didn't just send the flood to the world. He told Noah, go build an ark. He didn't just immediately bless Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a father of nations, but right now I just need you to go. Moses, there in the burning bush, he said, go, go back, set the people free. Well, what am I going to do? Just, just go back, I'll tell you. He challenges Pharaoh, it's this big to-do, big crazy movie scene with Charlton Heston and all those for the throwback movies there, and he leads, let my people go, and they go and they leave. And it's not until they get to the edge of the Red Sea that God decides to part it. And this isn't just Old Testament stuff, too. I mean, we do see these crazy stories, so for example... Moses is leading the people, they, they mess up, they keep denying God, they're, they're, they get lost for 40 years, and they go, they finally enter the promised land, and they get to this first city of Jericho, and so they have about a million people, they, Jericho's fortified city with all these walls, and so Joshua's like, okay, God, you're going to give us victory, how are we going to do it? And God says, you're going to walk around the city for seven days, and then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. And then you're going to blow trumpets. Can you imagine relaying that message from God to your people? Like, you just crossed the river. You're about to go into battle mode. You have the military officers in your tent, and you gather around. They're like, okay, what are we going to do? What, how are we going to have victory? God gave us this land. Here we go. What are we going to do? He says, all right, Joshua leans him in. He says, all right, everybody get in. 
I heard from God. Here's what we're going to do. You ready? Step one, we're going to walk around the walls. Like, okay, all right, all right, cool. All right, step two, the next day we're going to do the same thing. Okay. Day three. Okay, all right, what are we doing day three? We got it, we got it. We're going to survey the enemies. Got it, great. What are we going to do? We're going to walk around again. <laughs> like, can you imagine being in that room, that strategy session with the leaders? I'm like, all right, now go tell your people. Okay, clearly, okay, this may be intimidation, prayer, whatever it is, but on the final day, here's how we're going to win. We're going to blow some trumpet. Like, okay, Joshua, they have like weapons and stuff. Like, what's the plan? Trumpets. <laughs> but here's the craziness of it. They do it. They walk around, and on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And they blow these, not even the war trumpets, the praise trumpets, <laughs> the worship ones, and the walls come crumbling down and they take the city. I always wonder in that moment, what would have happened if the people of Israel stopped on day six? Because like the walls didn't crum crumble a little bit every day. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, hey, the walls came down a little bit. Day one, day two, they, they cracked a little bit. Oh, we see some progress. This is great. They had to just walk in faith. And if they would have stopped on day six, they would have missed the blessing on day seven. But yet it was God and the miracle of God that he provided for them on the other side of obedience and faith. And almost, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but yet God continues the story. This doesn't just run through the Old Testament, it runs through the New Testament too. For example, John chapter two, the very first miracle the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. But how does he do it? He takes the lowest of servants and he tells them, hey, fill these jars with water. And it wasn't until after that when they got ready to serve that it switched. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. Now the Bible talks about feeding of the 5,000. Really, it's referring to the count of men, and so you include women and children. It's probably closer to 20,000, so enough to fill the Phoenix Suns arena here. And Jesus told them, hey, tell the people to sit down. Lunch is coming. What would you do if you're a disciple in that moment? All right, everybody sit down. Food's coming. Yeah, trust me, it's going to be good. Do you know where it's coming? No. <laughs> and then... It doesn't happen until a little boy gives him a Lunchable, basically, some bread and fish. But it's once the people were sat down, once the boy gave the lunch, God took that and provided enough food to not only feed those 20,000 people, but enough for 12 baskets of leftovers. So every single disciple had a reminder of God's provision. <laughs> See, three principles to understanding God's provision. Because the story is contextual to Elisha. Like, I'm not telling you to go home right now and to physically go dig a ditch. I mean, unless you need to fix your irrigation, then maybe go for it. But, and so he's not going to call us. We're like, we're not going to go out and fight the Moabites today. Okay. But the God of Elisha is the same God today. And the God that provides is the same God that provides today. And so we see these three transferable principles from this story 
throughout Scripture that we can start applying right now as a church. The first principle to understanding God's provision is humility. You can't be prideful and experience God's provision at the same time. That'd be like receiving a birthday gift and, and be impressed with yourself. Right? Like, if you receive a birthday gift and you open it, like, wow, this is awesome. Thank you. Not, wow, look how great I am. Right? You open a birthday gift, yep, I deserve that. <laughs> Right? You can't be prideful and experience God's provision at the same time. Like start getting to the place where you understand that you need God is the first step. The very fact that Elisha told the kings to have people digging ditches was that you have to humble yourselves. You're admitting that you need him and you're saying, God, I can't do this. You can God, I don't know how we're going to win the battle, but I can march. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to turn this water into wine, but I can fill the jar. In Naaman's case, I don't know how you're going to cleanse me, but I can go into the Jordan. I don't know how you're going to provide food for these people, but we can sit them down. <laughs> All of which requires humility. It says here in Matthew 23, 12, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. In Philippians 2, it even says that we are to have the same mindset as Christ in Philippians 2, 5. And then it says, Jesus himself, who was obedient, who humbled himself to the point of the cross. So the first step to experiencing God's provision is to prepare your heart with humility. The second step or principle to understanding God's provision is trust. I would define trust this way. It's not going to be on your screens, but I would define trust this way. Trust is the level of confidence you have in someone's competency and character. Trust is the level of confidence you have in someone's competency and character. There are some people who you trust their character, but you don't trust their competency, right? They're the nicest people in the world, but you're probably not going to give them a project on your job. Right? Then there's other people who you trust their competency, but you can't trust them as far as you can throw a stick. <laughs> right? And so you have competency and you have character. Here's the beauty of the gospel, is that we can fully trust God's ability, his awareness, his affection for us. So can God do anything about it? Yes. Will he do something about things? Yes. He showed that through his son Jesus. Does he care for you? Yes. So is he trustworthy? Yes. You can trust him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It's taking your plans and your processes and your systems and saying, God, here, I humble myself and I trust you. So you need humility, you need trust, but the third principle to understanding God's provision is that you need a heart and a life of obedience. Are you willing to take action? That's what digging ditches meant. They obeyed what God told them to do, even when it seemed a little silly. 
Jesus was talking, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be inspired here on the weekends. But more than anything, I want you to be obedient to God's call in your life. And part of having a heart that's prepared for God's provision is to humble yourself before him, to trust God with the plan for your life, and then to obey him when he calls you to do something. So what does that look like? Well, calling up the musicians, as Elisha did in verse 15, it's biblical. What is God calling you to do? You see, you might be praying for water and God's telling you to grab a shovel. You might be asking for God's direction and you don't know the whole journey, but you probably have a step you can take. Right? For some of you in your relationships, you want a godly marriage and you don't know how it's going to get there, but it could start with one conversation or a date night, or a resource, or reaching out. You know, we, we want our spouse to be godly, but then are we willing to be the spouse that we want? Who would want? <laughs> right, and, and those who are single right now are looking like, we want Mr. or Mrs. Right. What if instead of that focus, we decide to become the person who we're looking for is looking for. In other words, we start doing the things and following God, and instead of waiting for our significant other to change, instead of waiting for that person to come, we start becoming that person, and we start serving them, and meeting those needs, and having those conversations. Right, you might be praying for your kids, in a, a big scary world out there, but then are you leading them? might start over a meal or task, doing the dishes, making the bed, have a conversation about honesty. You might want that job and you don't know how God's going to provide, but you can search, you can apply, you can reach out. It, it's not about having one day faith, like one day when I get the promotion, I get the house, I get the things, then I will be faithful. It's not about having one day faith, it's about having two day obedience. And saying, God, I can't see the rain, I can't see the water that's coming, but right now I'm gonna dig. I, I don't know how I'm gonna change my life, but I have your word, so I'm gonna read it. And I'm gonna pray. And I'm going to be crazy enough to actually try to do what it says. If you do that, God can change any situation, any circumstance, any heart. But he invites us into the process. I'll end with this. That, you know, you might have come here this morning to hear a message. And that's great. And I'm so glad you're here. But I want you to know that you being here 
is provision. You see, God gave me a vision years ago to step out and to start a church. And it seemed crazy. And some funding things backed out, kind of last minute things. And so when we made that leap, I had a month of savings and a mortgage and three kids. And it didn't make sense. But started making phone calls, knocking on doors, talking to people, praying, reading scripture, serving, helping. And lo and behold, I found that God was placing this call in other people's hearts too. <laughs> and so here we are years later with a team, with a church that is serving the community. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so you came here for a message, but you're actually an answer to prayer. And so this stuff is real, guys. That if you step out and you humble yourself and you trust God with it, and then you obey what he tells you to do, it makes a difference. And I want that for you. And I want that for me still. I want that for our family and for our kids. And when our focus is obedience, we can trust God with our outcome. We can look back and you will be amazed that when we show up, how God will show off. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room. I don't know what you might be calling them to do, but God, I pray that for whatever is represented by their water that they need in their life, God, I pray that they're willing to take the shovel Maybe it's a hard conversation. Maybe it is opening up and reading the Bible for the first time. Maybe it is reaching out and, and talking to that neighbor, talking to that friend, being faithful in the job, starting to be generous for the first time. God, my prayer is that we won't just have someday, one day faith, but we will have two day obedience and that we can take the steps that you've given before us. Because a small task done in your name can make a big difference. I pray for everyone here. I thank you for everyone here. May we humble ourselves and trust you to provide today. We love you in your sons and we pray. Amen.